0: Delta has arrived in Taiwan, not the airline, the COVID-19 variant that's at least 40% more transmissible than previous variants.
1: We'll tell you more about Delta, how it has spread in Taiwan, and how it's affected local mango farmers.
0: Later in the show, we'll compare the side effects of the two vaccines available in Taiwan, AstraZeneca and Moderna.
1: And in Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie Liao brings you an inside look at what it's like to be a nurse during an outbreak of COVID-19. This is Taiwan Insider. We have good news today. Taiwan's case numbers are dropping. There are only 47 local cases today. And for the past three weeks, our R number has been under one, which means the virus is spreading slower and slower. But there has been some concern over the Delta variant, and this is how it came to Taiwan.
2: As daily COVID-19 cases begin tapering off, the question on everyone's mind now is, should we be worried about the Delta variant? First discovered in India, this more transmissible COVID-19 variant is causing concern in Taiwan. A woman in her 50s and her grandson brought the strain to Taiwan when they returned from Peru on June 6. There's now a cluster outbreak of 15 COVID-19 cases in southern Taiwan's Pingdong County. Health authorities have confirmed that 12 of the 15 cases are the Delta variant, One is awaiting genetic sequencing results while the last two cases' strains can't be determined. One of the 12 Delta cases is a fruit farmer. Health authorities have yet to definitively determine how the farmer contracted the strain, though they suspect that it might have happened when he visited a hospital on the same day as another confirmed case. The hospital the fruit farmer visited suspended operations for two days to undergo disinfection. 399 people who have come into contact with the fruit farmer have all been sent to quarantine centers. With COVID-19 subsiding across Taiwan, the last thing the country needs is the Delta variant flaring up.
1: So what is the Delta variant and how big a threat is it? Well, Stash Butler tells us all about it on Taiwan Explained.
3: In viruses as in life, change is inevitable. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, scientists have identified hundreds of new variants of the virus, each with slightly different mutations. In Taiwan, all eyes are on the Delta variant after a cluster infection in Pingdong County. But what's special about Delta, and how worried should we be? The World Health Organization, or WHO, groups COVID variants into variants of concern and variants of interest. Delta is a variant of concern. Like all variants, it has a place in the virus's lineage. This graphic is a big family tree showing how all COVID variants are related. And here's a simplified version with all the WHO variants with Delta on the right-hand side. Delta is closely related to Kappa, a variant of interest also first found in India. According to the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, Delta has four spike mutations of interest. One mutation is common to all WHO-listed variants. The second is shared with Epsilon and Kappa, the third just with Kappa, And the final mutation is unique to Delta. What does this mean? Well, the WHO and the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, use similar criteria to say whether a variant is of concern or not. Essentially, those are, could the variant make diagnosis, treatment, or vaccination more difficult? Could it spread more easily? Or could it cause more severe illness? We'll look at these in order. So, could Delta make diagnosis, treatment, or vaccination more difficult? Well, the short answer is possibly. The US CDC website points to this research paper. It looks at the Epsilon variant, which has one of the same mutations as Delta. The paper suggests decreased antibody neutralisation, or essentially a weaker response to the virus, even among people who are vaccinated. But it still hasn't been peer-reviewed. The good news is that Public Health England in the UK says vaccines are still very effective at preventing hospitalisation. The organization says if you've had two jabs, you're unlikely to get sick and you're even more unlikely to need to go to hospital. Okay, moving on to our second cause of concern. Could it spread more easily? The short answer is yes. Research from Public Health England suggests that the Delta variant is about 60% more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which was first detected in the UK. And remember, the Alpha variant itself was already much more transmissible than the original virus, So it's likely Delta could spread quickly in Taiwan if not contained. That brings us on to the final question. Could it cause more severe illness? The short answer is it's not clear yet. Right now, the Delta variant is driving a surge in cases in the UK, but there hasn't been a big rise in deaths. That's probably at least partly because most high-risk groups have already been vaccinated. Some data also suggests that the variant could be less deadly than the Alpha variant. But those numbers could change, so right now it's too early to tell. As for people in Taiwan, regardless of the variant, the guidance stays the same. Keep away from big groups, wear a mask, stay at home, and get a vaccine when you're eligible.
1: So the Delta variant is easier to pass along and easier to get. So how would you know if you have it? Well, here are some of the symptoms.
0: A cough, a fever, and a lack of smell or taste. These are all classic COVID-19 symptoms, but a new study out of the UK has found slightly different symptoms for the Delta variant. Researchers at King's College London are collecting data from patients using a mobile app. They found the most common symptom of the Delta variant is a headache, followed by a sore throat, a runny nose, and a fever. Less common symptoms of the Delta variant include a cough, while loss of taste and smell is not even among the top 10 symptoms. National Taiwan University Hospital's Dr. Li Bingying says the findings are still preliminary and awaiting more formal study. If a runny nose becomes a much more common symptom, that could be a good development, he says. That could mean that the virus is overall less aggressive. But Taipei City Hospital's Dr. Sui Fong says that just because you have a runny nose does not mean you have the Delta variant of COVID-19. There are a lot of reasons why you sneeze, he says. It could be allergies, the common cold or other respiratory viruses. Experts say the Delta variant is at least 40% more transmissible than the Alpha variant first found in the UK. And the best form of protection? Get vaccinated. For the past couple of months in Taiwan, if you've gotten a COVID-19 jab, you've probably gotten a dose of AstraZeneca. But now there's a new kid on the block, Moderna. So how do the vaccines differ and what are the side effects? Here's more.
4: Taiwan's supply of COVID-19 vaccines continues to grow. The latest shipment, containing 410,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine, arrived Wednesday afternoon. Most of those vaccinated in Taiwan in the near future are likely to get the Moderna vaccine because Taiwan has a relatively large supply of doses. But there are still doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine ready for use, and doctors like Liu Chu of Kong Wu-ho-su Memorial Hospital say that people shouldn't be overly concerned about which vaccine they get. There are, of course, differences. Liebing Ng of the Central Epidemic Command Center says the AstraZeneca vaccine can lead to blood clots, while the Moderna can lead to myocarditis. Rates of pain at the injection site, fever, and chills differ between the two vaccines too, as does the overall rate of effectiveness. But the general consensus among doctors here is that serious side effects from these two vaccines are rare, and there is no need to be picky when it comes to which vaccine to get.
0: Now, I will always jump at an opportunity to do a story about mangoes or to eat mangoes if possible. But it seems like for the past couple of months, we've only been talking about the pandemic. Well, believe it or not, we have a story that's related to both.
3: Mango shaved ice is the perfect treat for a hot summer's day. And mangoes from Fangshan Township are the cream of the crop. But a recent outbreak of the COVID-19 Delta variant in the rural area has given pause to some. One viral message claims that you shouldn't smell fruits when buying them because some fruits can carry the virus. That goes especially for mangoes, the message says. And it seems the words have had an impact on sales. One local farmer says customers have cancelled over 100 boxes worth of orders. But Pingdong County Agriculture Official Zheng Yong Yu says that the mangoes are not a threat to people's health. He says there have been no reports anywhere in the world of fruit carrying COVID-19. Lawmaker Zhou Chun-mi says authorities are in contact with local mango farmers. She says they're setting up an online ordering system to address people's concerns, ensure that fangshan mangoes are safe to buy. Officials hope they can send out the right message to get people buying these sweet fruits again. That way, the ongoing COVID crisis won't leave these mango farmers feeling bitter.
0: Now, I'm happy to report that since this story broke, those mangoes have all sold out. Now, I tell you, I'm always happy to do my part to help the local farmers, especially if it means eating more mangoes. Up next, Hashtag Taiwan with Leslie Dow
2: Being in medicine is not easy. If it were simple, I'd do it, but then again, I'm squeamish, forgetful, and the sight of blood makes me grimace, faint, and scream, all at the same time. The thing is, medical professionals deserve our respect, even in normal times, because our health depends on them. But just in case you forgot, we are not living in normal times. COVID-19 has turned the world upside down and shaken it into oblivion. Frontline medical workers are the ones healing infected people and keeping this outbreak from getting any worse than it already is. Now, I'm not here to make the case that we should appreciate medical staff more, because no matter how much we do thank them, it will never be enough. I'm not saying society is ungrateful, I'm just saying medical professionals have done that much for us. But, there's a certain detachment to my understanding of medical work that needs remedying. I know they're exhausted, I know they're slammed. But, what is their day like? What are they thinking? How stressed are they? Should we be worried about them succumbing to said stress? These are the questions I ask because I want to know what they go through. On Sunday, I got a glimpse of the answers to my question when New Taipei City Mayor Houyouyi posted this video to Facebook. It's a one and a half minute video that depicts what a New Taipei City nurse does in the time of coronavirus. You're going to want to get the tissues because this one's a real heart wrencher. The video starts off with the nurse at a quarantine center. She walks into a room where an old woman is staying. Here's the part that kind of surprised me. The nurse holds up a phone so that the quarantine patient can speak with a doctor. I never knew that nurses had to act as bridges between doctors and quarantine patients, and that only made me realize how little I knew about what medical staff were going through right now. Think about this for a second. Really think about it for a second. The nurse exposes herself to a deadly virus every day to make sure that others are okay. It's a mind-blowing level of selflessness and risk, one that makes me worry that medical workers will one day get fed up and quit. But the video catches up with the nurse who then says, she doesn't think she's particularly brave, she's proud to be a nurse, and the only thing she worries about is not doing enough. We then cut back to the quarantine room where the old woman says thank you to the nurse. The video ends with the nurse saying she misses her family and she really wants to go home right now but can't. She says she knows her family is thinking of her and that's all she can really ask for. Now, this wouldn't be hashtag Taiwan if I didn't end on some kind of a witty quip, but I've gotten on for you this week. Because no matter what I say, it can't be anything more impactful or profound than that. It's just not gonna happen.
0: Before we leave you today, let's take a look at some of the other stories on our radar.
4: Taiwan and the U.S. have resumed trade talks after a five-year hiatus. During a virtual meeting on Wednesday, the two sides discussed issues like strengthening supply chains, market access for U.S. pork in Taiwan, and the possibility of authorizing Taiwanese companies to make COVID-19 vaccines. Taiwan is hoping the talks will lead to a free trade agreement. A third shipment of Moderna COVID-19 vaccine doses arrived in Taiwan on Wednesday. The addition of 410,000 doses means close to 1 million of the 5 million Moderna vaccines Taiwan has ordered have arrived. Taiwan has received more than 5 million total so far, mostly donations from the US and Japan. A second Taiwan-developed vaccine for COVID-19 has just finished Phase 2 trials. United Biomedical applied on Wednesday for emergency use authorization in Taiwan. It is now set to launch Phase 3 trials in India. Meanwhile, the EUA application for the other local vaccine, developed by Medigen Biotech, is likely to be pushed back to late July because of missing documentation. Apple Daily Taiwan is looking for a new owner. The publication was the biggest circulation newspaper in Taiwan before management axed the print version in May and downsized operations. The search for a buyer follows the closure earlier this month of the paper's Hong Kong edition, following the arrest of senior editors and executives. Apple Daily says, though, that its Taiwan operations have not been affected by the events in Hong Kong. The parent company says it's opening negotiations with a potential buyer.
1: All right, final question today. Taiwan has some delicious homegrown mangoes. What is your favorite way to eat them? Andrew.
0: All right, my favorite way to eat mangoes, aside from fresh, is, well, have a look at this. This is a mango pudding that I made, and it's topped with... Uh, some macerated dragon fruit, and a dollop of cream. So that's just one inventive and delicious way that you can have mangoes.
1: So creative, Andrew. How about you, Stash?
3: My favorite way to enjoy mangoes is straight from the farm. So my landlord, uh, his family actually owns a farm, uh, a mango farm down in Kaohsiung, and every year he sends us two big boxes for us to enjoy. So that's the highlight for me.
1: Lucky stash. And Leslie?
2: Alright guys, bear with me because my favorite way to eat mango is that. Now you can't really see it, but in that bowl is one mango, about 200 grams of Greek yogurt, and some fruit granola. Now it might look funky, but I promise you that's a one-way ticket to Flavortown.
1: Sounds good. My favorite way to eat them is freshly cut. I love those tangy, juicy, bite-sized pieces of mango. They're so delicious but I must add there's no better way to cool off in the summertime in Taiwan than having mango ice desserts which is ubiquitous in Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Insider. I'm Natalie So.
0: I'm Andrew Ryan. Take care everybody. I'm Stash Butler.
2: And I'm Leslie Liao asking you to try my yogurt mango granola bowl.
1: Be sure to follow us on social media. Leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. Taiwan, you're doing awesome. See you next week.
5: 我还有多少爱 我还有多少累, 谢谢人间坎坷辛苦
0: today with Natalie so.
1: China just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party on July 1st. Its growing military might and global influence and its unabated desire to unify with Taiwan is an existential threat to democratic Taiwan. Beijing has become increasingly belligerent, often sending warplanes to Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Former U.S. Indo-Pacific Command Admiral Philip Davidson said China could invade Taiwan within six years. Well, today we hear from a top China military expert at Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who is also a strategic planner for the U.S. Air Force Reserve. She testified to Congress this year that China could attack Taiwan within two years. I asked her why she thinks so.
6: I think a lot of uh, the wisdom that China would never want to risk a war with the United States is somewhat outdated. China, of course, of the 1990s, when we had the third Taiwan Strait crisis uh, and the United States sailed two aircraft battle groups uh, in the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait, China backed down. But that was largely because it did not have the military power to persevere and it also didn't have the economic and political power to protect itself from costs of use of force. That's no longer the case. Uh, China has basically embarked on a foreign policy strategy to ensure that countries, for the most part, would stay out of a Taiwan issue. And they've embarked on a very uh, impressive military reform campaign, which uh, for a component of it ended in 2020. And so now they do have the ability to take Taiwan by force. So this, coupled with Xi Jinping's statements, which, which suggests that he would like to resolve the issue, sooner rather than later points to a change in my mind of China's emphasis away from peaceful reunification towards a policy of armed reunification.
1: Now, Mastro's prediction of a Chinese attack on Taiwan within two years is pretty scary. And Taiwan is counting on the U.S. to be able to defend it. So I asked her if she thinks that the Biden administration is taking this threat seriously
6: think that they are taking the threat seriously, but they tend to misdiagnose what the problem is. So I think there's a general understanding that U.S. deterrence against China has weakened. But a lot of the focus has been on U.S. resolve. Can we credibly signal to Beijing that the United States is willing to defend Taiwan? But I think Beijing's uncertainty is no longer about the United States' willingness to fight. It's about the United States' ability to fight. And so the focus also needs to be be building and demonstrating the capabilities to prevail in a conflict if Beijing decides to use force.
1: So it seemed to me that she was saying that Beijing knows that the U.S. wants to defend Taiwan, but the U.S. may not be able to defend Taiwan. So I asked her what the U.S. needs to do in a practical sense to be able to defend Taiwan.
6: Well, we get into some maybe technical details, but one of the first things the United States needs to do is is have more land-based missiles, probably in the second island chain. So a lot of people think that if the war is costly for China, they won't do it. I disagree with that. I think if China gets Taiwan, Even if it costs them their Navy, they're willing to take that risk. And so I really think we need to focus on developing military capabilities designed to physically stop the Chinese from sailing across the strait. So something like having missile capabilities that you could saturate the strait with missiles would be sufficient to stop that type of amphibious uh, landing. So that's where I think uh, initially the focus should be.
1: So Mastro is a top American expert on the Chinese military. And she has testified to the US Congress about this possible attack from China on Taiwan. I ask her if she thinks Biden will prepare for this. I think the Biden administration
6: is focused on on that to a certain degree. One of the issues is that changes in platforms and force postures take time. And so the question is, while the United States is trying to revamp its deterrent in the region, what can we do politically? economically or diplomatically to also convince beijing that this is not the, the right move and I, I do think that if xi jinping thought that an attack on taiwan could threaten china's rejuvenation for example if he thought that u.s allies and partners would cut off trade ties indefinitely with beijing if they attack taiwan he wouldn't do it right? china's trade over 60 percent of it depends on the united states and its allies uh, the problem is that china has basically set up a foreign policy strategy to convince other countries that Taiwan is a unique case, how China treats Taiwan should not be taken as indicative of, you know, what type of country China is. Um, And so I think a lot of people within the Chinese government think, for the most part, countries will stay out. So we have to be able to signal that, no, the world after an attack on Taiwan will not be favorable towards Beijing.
1: You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I'm Natalie So. Today we're looking at the threat of a Chinese attack on Taiwan within two years. That's what top Chinese military expert at Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, believes could be the timeline. Next up, I talk with her about what the U.S. and its Democratic allies could do to deter China from such an attack.
5: Naroa Naroa
0: Na Kumai Baiwana Kanatar Tulungao The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
1: You're listening to Taiwan Today and we are looking into the threat of China taking over Taiwan. Today my guest is a top China military expert at Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro. Mastro recently testified to the U.S. Congress this year that China could attack Taiwan within two years. She is also a strategic planner for the U.S. Air Force Reserves. Now we talk about what the United States and its allies can do to deter China. Just this week, Japan's defense minister openly spoke about the threat of China on Taiwan and said that Japan and the United States should protect Taiwan. A couple of weeks ago, at a G7 summit for the first time, Those Western leaders highlighted in a joint statement the importance of peace in the Taiwan Strait. The Group of Seven said, We remain seriously concerned about the situation in the East and South China Seas and strongly oppose any unilateral attempts to change the status quo and increase tensions. That was a sign of strong support from the United States and its allies. Now, I asked Mastro how important these statements are to deterring China.
7: Of course, the willingness to speak out
6: is the first step, because even that, Beijing has tried to uh, basically deter not only governments, but companies, individuals, um, you know, China very strong position on Taiwan and demands that everyone at every level adheres to that position. So of course you know speaking out against some of Chinese activities is the first step. but I think you know more has to be done, including you know increasing Taiwan's international space for too long, the United States other countries have been afraid of provoking Beijing and, and so they have uh, been willing to accept Chinese terms when it comes to Taiwan. The silver lining of my assessment, if there is one, is that China is not going to use force until it feels like it's 100% militarily ready. What this means is that these uh, attempts of the United States or other countries to increase Taiwan's international space, our connectivity, delegations, what have you, this is not going to be sufficient to spark a war. So I think we we can uh, be less fearful uh, that uh, our relationships with with Taiwan are going to push us over the precipice.
1: Relations between Taiwan and the U.S. have been improving in the past few years. This week, we saw the resumption of trade talks. A couple of weeks ago, the United States donated 2.5 million doses of the Moderna vaccine as Taiwan is facing a major vaccine shortage during its biggest outbreak since the pandemic began. U.S. President Joe Biden has also sent U.S. warships through the Taiwan Strait six times since he's been in office. The Biden administration has also elevated U.S. and Taiwan official exchanges. So we have seen a lot of support from the United States. But I asked Master the question that has really been on my mind throughout the whole interview is why did she say Two years it's that's very soon and why does she think an attack could happen in two years? So I think
6: you know a lot of these timelines are somewhat arbitrary. I do think China just finished this military reform program in 2020. So they're now technically capable of conducting the exact type of joint operation that would be necessary to take Taiwan um, with an amphibious landing. But they haven't fought a war since 1979. I think they probably want some time to do more realistic exercises, maybe even a smaller scale assault. My bets are on a a Vietnamese held island in the South China Sea if I had to place them. But do something small scale to learn some lessons, uh, uh, really hone that command and control before you go after something big like Taiwan. Now, that's a very sort of American view of I think they want to be as ready as humanly possible. When I talk to Chinese military personnel, they seem to think that they're ready uh, now. So I think it and then those other U.S. experts that think they won't be you know, fully ready for a couple of years. I had a colleague just recently on Twitter sort of argue against my position saying China doesn't have enough landing platforms. A lot of what is enough to give you confidence can be very country based. The United States likes to have a lot and be extremely confident before we do everything. You know, China might be more confident with less. So we have to keep that in mind, too, as we're making our assessments.
1: So since Mastro thinks it's such a strong possibility that China could attack Taiwan within two years, I asked her again if she thinks the United States is determined to defend Taiwan.
6: I do. I mean, I think that the United States does have the willingness and the resolve to not only defend Taiwan, but to stand up against coercion and aggressiveness more broadly. It is very hard to predict the will of the American people. I think even a U.S. president can't predict that. But time and time again, uh, the American people seem to believe that they should use, you know, U.S. strength to to protect those that cannot protect themselves. So, so I'm confident that if push came to shove, that would be the U.S. position on the issue.
1: Of course, the threat to Taiwan is not just the United States' responsibility. Uh, Taiwan has responsibility to defend itself when I asked Master what she thinks Taiwan should be doing to deter an attack from China.
6: Well, there's a number of things. There is this general debate about the resiliency of the people of Taiwan. So one of the questions for a US domestic audience is, why should we be willing to sacrifice so much to defend Taiwan if the people of Taiwan are willing to make those sacrifices? So some things that come up, for example, is how much Taiwan spends on its defense budget or whether they pass uh, certain arms sales packages through the legislature, or even moving from the um, a prof- to an all-volunteer professional force, the fact that not enough people in Taiwan are willing to sign up for military service. You know, these create signals in the United States of, you know, why should we be sending our people over there to fight if the people of Taiwan are not willing to fight for their own freedom? And so it it, it is much more of a psychological component. Of course, we can talk about the, the physical ability of Taiwan to defend itself in the face of Chinese aggression. But I think some of these psychological things really do matter. Um, if the United States is going to come to the aid of Taiwan, the first thing that's necessary is that that Taiwan is willing to defend itself.
1: Well, it does make sense that Taiwan should be willing to defend itself if it wants the U.S. to help defend it from a Chinese attack. I'll be speaking more with this top China military expert from Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who was also a strategic planner for the United States Air Force Reserve. Join us next week as we continue to discuss how the U.S., Taiwan, and the world can deter China from attacking Taiwan. For Taiwan Today, I'm Natalie Sill. So.
0: This is Radio Taiwan International.
1: For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler, with The Download.
3: Welcome to The Download, a brand new show from Radio Taiwan International, covering all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Stash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I speak to Regina Liu. She's the head of marketing and product planning for a new VR cycling platform called WizU. Regina tells me why Taiwan is cycling mad and why indoor cycling is here to stay. All that coming up on The Download. So what WizU essentially is, is a... Software platform. They don't do hardware, but they build software uh, for people to sit at home on their bikes and cycle through these kind of virtual landscapes. It's very similar to other companies such as Peloton in in the U.S. I asked Regina to introduce herself and and tell me what the company is all about.
7: My name is Regina uh, Regina Liu. I'm in charge of the marketing department and the product planning. So why 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 is the Uniwell? Unilevel is the company the very dedicated development notebook and have a, a 20, more than 20 years experience on the notebook and the tablet and the IT field. Let me talk about uh, the you. With you is the one of the department from the Uniwell and uh, we are more focused on to developing AR, VR and the 3D technology.
3: So you started with you as a company in, in 2018. But what led up to that? What what led you to expand into this field?
7: Uh, initially, the uh, we are very focused on the VR and the sport and the uh, 5G AIOT. But uh, for some reason, uh, we are thinking the cycling is very interesting and very popular in the Taiwan. So we are change our planning to very focused and development in the fitness the platform.
3: So tell me more about WizU. What is, what is your product and, and how does it work?
7: It's like the, the, the product is for use indoor cycling. And you can have the training in home and you don't need to go out and touch with the people and keep safe and healthy. In this app, we can have a help user to analyze your uh, data, so they can enhance the cyclist to help them to plan in what's the next step to enhance their training program. Actually, you need some measurement equipment. For example, you need the power meter or the cadence to help you to input the data to our platform. Then we can based on the platform to feedback the data and the feedback the instruction to tell you how should you uh, cycling do, do you need to cycle in harder or lighter or or you feel it currently in the delight or incline. So it's the communication between the, the equipment platform and the, the speeder or the cadence, not just only the bike, you need some the smart trainer or the power meter or the cadence to help you get the data and input the data to our platform.
3: So talking about the virtual reality element of it all, your users essentially have a screen in front of them showing a kind of virtual road that they are traveling along. Is that is that right?
7: Yes. Uh, the map will show in was based on what data you you input to us. For example, now you are giving us some smart trainer, give us the the data to tell us currently the speed, how much and how far. Then our platform will based on this information to display. So this is the communication the interactive between the data and our platform. Then we uh, combine this technology and uh, display the uh, map to our user. So
3: where do these maps come from? I mean, so you have to simulate things like uh, incline, elevation, and so on. Where are you getting all this data from?
7: Gather the data, not not only the GIS, also the map. We check a lot of map and uh, public map to generate the map to our user.
3: Right. So, where can you ride on your app? Is is it only in Taiwan, or can you ride on these sort of virtual maps of places further abroad?
7: Uh, in this moment, uh, we are just the, have the Taiwan, but uh, uh, maybe second half we have uh, the, another country, for example, Italian, Spanish, or French. This our planning. We're not just limited in the Taiwan because we are not reality map. We are. AR reality and uh, VR reality and uh, combined with uh, 3D. So we can generate the uh, worldwide uh, route just based on our group, our user, the request and the favorite.
3: So who are your customers at the moment? Who's, who's using you at the moment?
7: In this moment, we, our group very focused on the cycling. They love cycling. Oh, I say they are crazy. So this this is the one of our customer is very crazy and love the cycling to like to the enhance their performance. There's another grouping we are want to the approach is the, uh, some people maybe he, he like uh, exercise and uh, want to the maintain his the shape. So maybe they are like to the exercise in June or in home for convenience
3: you kind of bring me on to my next point which is uh i mean i feel anecdotally like i have a lot of friends here who really really love cycling and it feels to me like taiwan is full of people who love cycling so what is it that makes taiwan so great for for doing that
7: i i i think that taiwan basically taiwan is the the world number one the bike industry another one is taiwanese the love the exercise we can see a lot of people and uh, exercise in the park and the riverside park and also the mountain and uh, for the outdoor bike so it's natural i think the the taiwanese people love the exercise plus taiwan have a good uh, bike industry to then they get the bike more easily
3: right you know it's funny i guess because i mean you say you started this company in 2018 right and and then two years later in 2020, there's a global pandemic and suddenly everyone has to stay at home. I mean, you really picked the right industry.
7: Just the right type. For product, the point of, of the view, you have the good product and good timing. We, we cannot say that the uh, COVID-19 is good, but we're just in the time.
3: So do you think this is a lasting change in the market? I mean, essentially, these people who started cycling indoors during the pandemic, during these lockdowns, Are they going to keep cycling indoors once restrictions are lifted?
7: Um, I I think that uh, indoor cycling not just because the the COVID-19 the pandemic at this moment, but it also have some the benefit for use. For example, in the winter, the snow in and very cold in the outside. The best solution is that you are stay in the home and training in the home, and you don't need to start because and uh, affected by environment or or weather. This is the one reason. Another reason is that if the, you can stay in the home to train. you don't need to go to the somewhere others. You just stay home. You, you save your traveling time. You let you more easy to to training in home. Yeah. Indoor cycling still have the market and still will increase because it's not just for the pandemic uh, in moment. Yeah.
3: That was Regina Liu from WizU, telling me why she thinks indoor cycling is here to stay. And that's all we have time for. Join me, Stash Butler, next week for another episode of The Download. Viruses as in life, change is inevitable. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, scientists have identified hundreds of new variants of the virus, each with slightly different mutations. In Taiwan, all eyes are on the Delta variant after a cluster infection in Pingdong County. But what's special about Delta, and how worried should we be? The World Health Organization, or WHO, groups COVID variants into variants of concern and variants of interest. Delta is a variant of concern. Like all variants, it has a place in the virus's lineage. This graphic is a big family tree showing how all COVID variants are related. And here's a simplified version with all the WHO variants with Delta on the right-hand side. Delta is closely related to Kappa, a variant of interest also first found in India. According to the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, Delta has four spike mutations of interest. One mutation is common to all WHO-listed variants. The second is shared with Epsilon and Kappa, the third just with Kappa, and the final mutation is unique to Delta. What does this mean? Well, the WHO and the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, use similar criteria to say whether a variant is of concern or not. Essentially, those are, could the variant make diagnosis, treatment, or vaccination more difficult? Could it spread more easily? Or could it cause more severe illness? We'll look at these in order. So, could Delta make diagnosis, treatment, or vaccination more difficult? Well, the short answer is, possibly. The US CDC website points to this research paper. It looks at the Epsilon variant, which has one of the same mutations as Delta. The paper suggests decreased antibody neutralisation, or essentially a weaker response to the virus, even among people who were vaccinated. But it still hasn't been peer-reviewed. The good news is that Public Health England in the UK says vaccines are still very effective at preventing hospitalisation. The organization says if you've had two jabs, you're unlikely to get sick and you're even more unlikely to need to go to hospital. Okay, moving on to our second cause of concern. Could it spread more easily? The short answer is yes. Research from Public Health England suggests that the Delta variant is about 60% more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which was first detected in the UK. And remember, the Alpha variant itself was already much more transmissible than the original virus, so it's likely Delta could spread quickly in Taiwan if not contained. That brings us on to the final question, could it cause more severe illness? The short answer is it's not clear yet. Right now the Delta variant is driving a surge in cases in the UK but there hasn't been a big rise in deaths. That's probably at least partly because most high-risk groups have already been vaccinated. Some data also suggests that the variant could be less deadly than the Alpha variant. But those numbers could change so right now it's too early to tell. As for people in Taiwan, regardless of the variant the guidance stays the same. Keep away from big groups, wear a mask, stay at home, and get a vaccine when you're eligible.
0: Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan.